For 15 years, Jim Fix ran 80 miles a week. He was a noted expert on the sport of running, being the author of the 1978 bestseller, The Complete Book of Running. He appeared to be in top physical condition, yet at the age of 52, only 52, Jim Fix died of a massive heart attack while running alone on a Vermont road. See, Jim Fix didn't realize that in spite of all of his exercise, he had a very, very serious heart condition. And the reason that his cardiac problem was unknown to him was because he refused to get regular heart checkups. In fact, he stubbornly refused to let his heart be examined. In a similar way, there are many people who have spiritual heart problems, and they just don't know it. They don't know it because like Jim Fix, they refuse to let their hearts be examined by anyone. And that brings us today to our study in the Gospel of Luke because beginning with chapter 4 of Luke chapter 8, we read that Jesus gave an important lesson in the form of a parable that forces us, absolutely forces us to learn about the true condition of our hearts. Here's what he said. I'm going to read the whole passage. We're not going to be able to cover all of it today, but I want you to see it as a unit of thought. Starting with verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell on the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. The seed which fell amongst the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, this is the first time that we are seeing a parable like this, an extended parable, a full parable, but it's not the first time we have encountered any parables in the Gospel of Luke. Earlier, In chapter 5, Jesus gave a parable about some wine and wineskins. In chapter 6, he gave a parable in his Sermon on the Mount about a wise man who built his house upon a rock and a foolish man who built his house upon some sand. And in chapter 7, he gave a parable about a man who loaned people money and he freely forgave the debt of two people who owed him money. However, 
These were parables in the form of brief illustrations. They were very brief parables, but they were parables. Here though, in Luke chapter 8, with the parable of the sower, we have the first major parable that Jesus gave in the form of what I would call an extended analogy. It is a full parable, extended analogy. So before we actually study this parable, because this is really the first time we're delving into the thought about what a parable is, it's important that we first understand the basic concept of a parable as a type of communication. So we begin where you always have to begin with what is the meaning of the word? So what does the word parable mean? Well, the particular Greek word that's translated into English as parable literally means to place something alongside of something else. And folks, that's exactly what a parable is. It's a story taken from everyday life situations that is then placed alongside of a moral or a spiritual truth for the purpose of teaching. In other words, a parable is an earthly story that is intended to communicate a heavenly truth. Or very simply put, a parable teaches a spiritual lesson by taking a story from everyday common life situations. Now, parables, as Jesus used them, should not be confused with the literary form of a fable or an allegory because they are very different. How different? Well, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce explained the difference between these forms of stories when he wrote these words. He said, parables differ from fables in that a fable is not a real situation. An example of a fable is any of Aesop's stories in which animals talk. In these stories, the animals are simply people in disguise. Parables also differ from allegories, since in an allegory, each and nearly each detail has meaning. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia are essentially allegories. In the parables of Jesus, not every detail has meaning. Indeed, to try to force meaning into each one can produce strange and even false doctrines. Parables are merely real-life stories from which one or possibly a few basic truths are drawn. So I hope that's helpful. It is also helpful to know that Jesus did not invent parables as a method of teaching. Parables were used long before Jesus ever ministered in the first century. In fact, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures contain some parables. Probably the most well-known parable is the story that the prophet Nathan told King David about a little lamb being taken. And what he was doing, he was illustrating that King David had taken Bathsheba, the little lamb, from her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And it was very common. It was actually very common for the ancient rabbis to teach in parables. And so the people of our Lord's Day, they were very familiar with this particular teaching technique so that they didn't consider Christ speaking to them in parables as something odd or unusual or strange. However, although Jesus wasn't the first teacher to ever use parables, he was the most effective teacher of parables because he brought this style of teaching, folks, to the highest level because he was the master at using the common, ordinary occurrences and events of everyday life to communicate profound spiritual truths. 
In fact, some of our Lord's most memorable teaching was presented in parables. You recall the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. And here we have in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, which is somewhat the granddaddy of them all because everything else has to be understood based on our correct interpretation of this parable. Now, although Luke in his gospel account doesn't tell us the setting, the context of the parable of the sower, Matthew though in his fuller account of the same event he does. And I'm going to be referring a lot to Matthew this morning because Matthew fills in some of the spaces that Luke just doesn't tell us about. And from Matthew, we read these important words in Matthew chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying... Now, Matthew introduces this section in his gospel account about parables. In fact, Matthew tells us a lot more parables than Luke does. But he introduces parables to us by telling us that on a certain day, which Matthew specifically calls that day... On that day, Jesus decided to start teaching in parables. So, what was that day? I want you to note this because this is extremely important. It was the very same day that Jesus had been accused of being demonic. The Pharisees said, you cast out demons by Beelzebul. Lord of the flies is what they meant, another word for Satan. See, just a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 12, we read that the Jewish religious leaders of Israel, as I said, had charged Jesus with being demonic, accusing him of casting out demons by Satan's own power. In other words, they said, you're in league with Satan. You are demonic. You are satanic. Here's what we read, Matthew 12, 22 through 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, having revealed that this is what they really thought about Jesus. This is what the Pharisees really were thinking about Jesus. And this was their conclusion about him, that he was demonic, he was in league with Satan. Jesus then proceeds to make his own conclusion about them. And his conclusion was that their hearts were so hardened, their hearts were so resistant, their hearts were so dead set against him that it was clear that they had made their final decision concerning him. He knew that there was no turning back now. He knew that their minds were made up, that they would never change their thinking about him. And therefore, they had reached a point of such hardness that this was an irreversible rejection of him and it meant that they would never repent, they would never experience God's forgiveness of salvation. They had gone beyond the point of return. And so in light of what he said to them, he said this, this is what we read, in light of all of this and their rejection, this is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, here's what I'm saying to you based 
on what I'm hearing from them. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is known as the unforgivable sin, and people are unnecessarily troubled about this. Because they really don't understand it. So let me explain it to you. The unforgivable sin is the sin of a final and permanent rejection of Jesus Christ. These men blaspheme the Holy Spirit by deliberately rejecting the Spirit's attestation, the Spirit's testimony of Jesus as the Messiah. They saw his miracles. They heard him teach. And yet they said he's demonic. He's demonic. All that the Spirit was bearing witness to, this is your Messiah. He's the one who fulfills all the prophecies in the Old Testament. They saw it, they heard it, they said no. So there was no turning back. These men had made up their minds. They made their final decision about Jesus. And Jesus made it very clear, you have rejected me permanently. There will never be forgiveness for you because I know you will never repent and you will never trust me. That's why it's unforgivable. Because... They'll never believe. The only thing awaiting these religious leaders was God's judgment. And so, knowing that the masses of Jewish people, meaning the majority of the nation of Israel, would eventually follow their religious leaders in rejecting him as king and Lord and Savior and Messiah, from this point on, note this, Jesus intentionally changes his approach to teaching large crowds who came to hear him. It was on that day. Though Luke doesn't tell us this, Matthew says that it was from this point on that Jesus spoke to the crowds of people only in parables. Only. Now, that's not the case with his disciples, but to the crowds of unbelievers, only in parables. We read that in Matthew 13, verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And the reason he did it this way was because knowing that the leadership, the official leadership of Israel had rejected him and that the masses of people were soon to join them in their rejection of him, he chose to now speak to them only in parables, note this, as a form of judgment upon the nation. That judgment being that they could not and they would not understand the meaning of these parables. Writing about this judgment, one Bible scholar put it this way. He said, from this point on, Jesus spoke to the crowds only in parables. This was a deliberate act of judgment on his part. Those who would not believe now could not. The fools who hated knowledge were deprived of it. By presenting his teaching in parables, Jesus hid the truth from rejecting unbelievers and revealed it only to his faithful followers. Without an explanation, a parable can mean anything or nothing. It is little more than a riddle. The Lord's veiling of the truth means that judgment had fallen on Israel so that they could no longer understand the teaching of their own Messiah. Only the Lord's disciples understood the parables because only they received his explanation of them. Mark's account of this incident records that Jesus was saying to his disciples, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may not see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So on the very day that Jesus was officially 
rejected by the Jewish leaders was the day that he began to speak in parables. And Matthew tells us that on that day, he left the house in Capernaum where he had been teaching. It may very well have been Peter's house. He walked down to the Sea of Galilee, which is only a few hundred yards away. And as large crowds followed him there, he got into a boat, probably again, probably Peter's boat, rowed a little distance from the land, sat down, as rabbis always did when teaching, and he began to speak to the crowds of people in a parable and in parables. And the very first parable that Jesus gave was about a sower casting his seed on various soils. And it was given by him in order to explain why relatively few people come to faith in him. Why so few people, relatively few people, come to faith in him? You see, knowing how the religious leaders of the nation felt about him and the vast majority of Israel being soon to follow them and rejecting him, Jesus gives this parable of the sower to describe what will happen when their rejection leads to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his return to glory, to heaven. In other words, in this parable of the sower, Jesus explains how his kingdom will advance, how it will progress while he's away, while he's in heaven, during what we call the church age, these days that we're living in. It will advance, the Lord teaches, with only a small minority coming to faith in him, even though there will be many who will claim to be Christians, but in reality they are not. Now folks, I want you to understand this is an extremely important parable to grasp and to comprehend because it helps us to understand why so many people profess faith in Christ but then seem to to fall away. They reject Christ. They want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with any kind of association with Christians, Christianity. In fact, this has happened so often in recent days with high-profile leaders that a new word has actually been coined to describe it. It's called deconversion. Deconversion. And closer to home, many of us have been deeply troubled by friends and loved ones who at one time, they claimed to be Christians. They even appeared to love the Lord, but now they want nothing to do with the Lord. Were all these people saved and then they all just backslid? Did they lose their salvation as so many believe? Or were they never converted in the first place and only looked like they were? Well, the parable that we're studying, the parable of the sower was given by Jesus to explain all this, to explain why these professions of faith in him don't produce godly fruit and and why There are so few people who when they hear the gospel, they're receptive to it and they believe it and they trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now the way that Luke unfolds Jesus giving the parable of the sower is that he presents it in two parts. In the first part, he tells us about Jesus telling the parable. In the second part, he tells us about Jesus telling his disciples the interpretation of the parable. So first the parable, then the interpretation. We're going to look at the parable this morning and just a little bit of the interpretation, but we begin where the passage begins in chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. 
the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as, as it grew up, it withered away, because it, it just had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell on good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, although the, the crowd who heard the story by Jesus would not be able to comprehend its spiritual meaning, its significance, everyone, though, in that crowd that day would have certainly understood the various elements involved in this story that Jesus told. Because Jesus spoke about a very common scene that all first century Jewish people in Israel were familiar with. This was not something foreign to them. He told them an agricultural story about a man, a farmer, who he called a sower, with a seed bag. It would have been either tied to his waist or been slung over his shoulder. And this sower is walking up and down his field and he's throwing seed from his bag as he went. Now, since modern day methods of farming are very different from the farming methods used in our Lord's day, I'm going to quote to you a Bible teacher who is very familiar with the experience of the typical Jewish farmer in Christ's day as he cast seed upon his field. So picture this in your minds. He writes, In ancient Israel, farmers sowed seed by hand. As the farmer walked across the field, he would sow the seeds by scattering handfuls of seeds onto the, the ground from a large bag slung across his shoulders. The plants did not grow in neat rows as is accomplished by today's machine planting. No matter how skillful, no farmer could keep some of his seed from falling by the wayside, from being scattered amongst the rocks and thorns, or from being carried off by the wind. So the farmer would throw the seed liberally, and enough would fall on good ground to ensure a good harvest. Now, in this story then, Jesus spoke of four different types of soil that the seed fell upon. In fact, soil is a major component, a major theme of this parable, so much so that some people actually call this parable the parable of the soils. Well, first of all, as the sower hurled his seed, some of it landed, Jesus said, upon soil beside the road, which is a reference to the beaten down paths that divided the narrow strips of cultivated fields. The farmer used these paths to walk on as he went through his field, and so they were beaten down by feet, by animal hooves, by wheels, so that the soil then became as hard as pavement. And as a result, the seed just could not penetrate the hard as concrete soil. So this seed was just sitting on top of the soil and it was exposed then to the elements. And Jesus then said that the birds of the air came and swooped down and they just ate up the seed because it's just lying on the surface. It couldn't penetrate the surface. Now, as this farmer continued then to throw his seed, Jesus said some of it fell on a different type of soil. Jesus said some of the seed fell on what he called rocky soil. Now, this wasn't soil in which loose rocks were lying around because the farmer would certainly have removed 
all of the rocks. He would have removed all the other objects from the field before casting his seed. No, this kind of soil was rocky in the sense it was very shallow soil that was on top of a layer of solid rock with the rock, probably limestone, just a few inches below the surface. So seed then falling on this type of soil would spring up immediately. In fact, the plants would spring up much faster than normal because the rock made the earth very warm, but its roots could not penetrate the rock beneath it to reach any moisture, to reach any water. So even though everything with these plants initially looked really good, as soon as the sun poured down on these plants, they were scorched and they withered. They died because the lack of deep roots prevented them from absorbing, as I said, moisture and nourishment. Now, the third type of soil that Jesus said the seed fell upon, in addition to the hard-packed soil of the road and the rocky soil, was soil that was infested with weeds in the form of thorns. Now, no farmer in his right mind would intentionally scatter his seed among soil that he knew had thorns, but there was some soil where thorns just weren't obvious. This was soil where cultivation had failed to uproot the thorns so that the thorns were unseen and they were lying just beneath the surface. But when the thorns grew up, and they eventually had to, they choked the good seed, they just choked it to death by taking most of the space, the water, the nutrition, and the sunlight for themselves. Now, the fourth and final type of soil that Jesus said the seed fell upon, he said was good soil. Meaning what? Meaning it was fertile soil. It was soft, it was loose, it was soiled with sufficient depth for roots to sink in and certainly free of weeds. And in contrast to the other types of soil, the seed that fell on this good soil, Jesus said it yielded an abundant crop. In fact, the Lord said it produced the maximum yield. It produced a a crop a hundred times as great, meaning that one grain of seed produced a hundred grains, 100% increase. Now, folks, that is the parable. That's the story that Jesus told the people that day, a story about a sower casting his seed upon various soils and what happened to the seed once it fell upon the soil. But this was more than a mere story about the experience of a farmer in Israel. There was a profound spiritual lesson to this story. And we know this. We know this because Luke tells us that while Jesus told this story, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As he's telling the story, in other words, there's more here than meets the eye, or we can say more here than meets the ear. More here than meets the eye. There's a message, folks, in this simple story. So you've got to be discerning to grasp it. If you have the capacity to understand this parable, then understand it. However, only the Lord's disciples were interested in understanding the meaning of this parable. Nobody else was. And we know that because Luke tells us in verse 9, His disciples began questioning him, only his disciples, only his followers, as to what this parable meant. So after hearing the Lord tell the story, his disciples came up to him and asked him to tell them the meaning of the story, the meaning of the parable. But before telling them the interpretation, the meaning of the parable, Jesus explains to them something that has puzzled people and troubled people over the years, disturbed many people. Notice what he told his disciples in verse 10. 
And he said, to you, meaning you, my followers, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest, meaning those who are not my followers, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the answer Jesus gave to his disciples for speaking in parables was that his parables, he said, they serve a dual purpose. They serve two purposes. First of all, these parables communicated divine truth about his kingdom to his disciples, his followers, true believers. This is what the Lord meant when he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that one of his purposes for teaching in parables was to explain to his followers some previously unrevealed truths. That's what a mystery is about the kingdom of God during his physical absence from the earth. In other words, Christ's purpose in giving these parables, these parabolic stories was to help his disciples understand what the church age would be like, the times we are living in right now. And that's exactly what they do. Many of the Lord's parables, and not just the parable of the sower, are extremely helpful. They give us great insight into the days we're living in. For example, some of the parables explain the high cost of being Christ's disciple, what it will cost you in this day and age to live for Jesus. Still other parables explain what's going to happen at the end of the age to all those who claim to know Christ but really did not in their hearts know him. So the first reason Jesus gave for speaking in parables was to reveal some profound theological concepts to his disciples using very familiar terms and word pictures. However, there's also a second reason, a second purpose that the Lord gave for speaking in parables. And this is what has troubled people. This is what has disturbed and puzzled some people. Jesus said that he spoke in parables, note this, in order to conceal the truth from unbelievers. This is precisely what the Lord meant when he said in verse 10, but to the rest, but to the rest, it's in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, as I told you, the rest in this statement is a reference to the rest who were not his followers. And what Jesus is saying is that his purpose in speaking in parables was to conceal the truth about his kingdom from the unbelieving multitudes. Though they would see, though they would hear what Jesus was saying, they would not understand him. They couldn't understand him. In other words, while everyone that day heard these parables come from Christ's lips, both believers and unbelievers alike, they were all there. Only Christ's disciples would be given the capacity by God to understand their spiritual meanings, but not those who had not accepted him. To unbelievers, these parables just sounded like stories about everyday living in Israel. Big deal. That's all they got out of them. Now, the question is, why would Jesus do this? Why, why would Jesus use a teaching method that unbelievers could not understand? Well, Luke doesn't explain this. He doesn't address this. He doesn't tell us anything more about this. However, Matthew does. Matthew in his gospel account records Jesus elaborating on this thought of using parables to conceal the truth from unbelievers. Notice what we read in Matthew chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. For whoever has to him more shall be given, 
and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, what Jesus is saying by these words is that whoever has, meaning who? Meaning his disciples. They have. They have salvation. They have understanding of God's ways. They will continue to receive more understanding of God's ways. They have. They're going to have more. In other words, in addition to what my followers already know, they would know more because I will enable them to understand the mysteries of my parables. But that wasn't the case with those who did not believe in him concerning the masses of Jewish people who had not accepted him and were soon to reject him. The Lord said that they, the they meaning unbelievers, he said, whoever does not have, meaning those who do not have salvation, do not have an understanding of the way of reconciliation with God. Those who do not have whatever spiritual truths they had would be taken away from them. In other words, those who rejected him as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior, who had the truth right in front of them because he was giving the truth, he is the truth, they're going to drift further and further away from the truth. Whatever spiritual light they once had by hearing him teach will be taken away from them as they move deeper and deeper into spiritual error and darkness. And that's precisely why Jesus said that he spoke to unbelievers in parables. You see, as I mentioned earlier, our Lord's parables were a form of divine judgment upon the Jewish people. And as Matthew tells us, Jesus went on to say that this particular form of judgment was actually not new. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and they experienced somewhat in the Old Testament, but it was completely fulfilled in his day. Here's what Matthew goes on to say in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. He said, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Now, this is a quote from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And it refers to what God did in Isaiah's day and what would be completely fulfilled in Christ's day. He judged the nation of Israel in Old Testament times because they ignored him. They ignored the prophet Isaiah just as the people refused to listen to Isaiah and therefore God judged them so that they could no longer understand the prophet and his message. So now... So now, all these years later, so now they would hear Jesus speak in parables, but God would judge them because they wouldn't be able to understand him either. They didn't understand Isaiah. They won't understand Jesus. And that's exactly what happened because even though they heard Jesus teach, they would not and they could not comprehend the meanings of these stories. They were just interesting stories to them. No profound kingdom truths, just interesting stories. Concerning this form of divine judgment, theologian R.C. Sproul said this. He said, God's justice is poetic. He gives people over to their sins. If their hearts are hardened by their own sin, he says, let that hardened heart be even more hardened. Let that stiff neck be even more stiff. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. 
This is a perfectly just judgment on God's part with respect to people who do not want to have God in their thinking, end of quote. Now folks, specifically, and in this context, what Jesus is talking about here is that he pronounced a form of judgment on the Jewish people, on the nation of Israel for their rejection of him. But don't misunderstand, this is not an anti-Semitic remark by Jesus that was intended to breed prejudice and hatred. The Bible teaches very clearly that God loves the Jewish people. He calls them the apple of his eye. He says that they are beloved for the Father's sake and that one day all Israel, he said, will be saved. But the fact of the matter is that Jewish people who have been given so much spiritual enlightenment because as Paul puts it in the book of Romans, unto them were committed the oracles of God. That is to say, to them the Old Testament scriptures were given. To them they had the law and the prophets. However, though they had so much enlightenment, Jewish people are some of the most confused people on the planet when it comes to understanding spiritual truth. Frankly, today most Jewish people reject the Old Testament. In fact, many of them don't even own a Bible. And either they embrace a religion of man-made traditions or they are totally secular in their thinking. You may not realize this, so there are many religious Jews in the nation of Israel. Officially, Israel, the modern nation of Israel, is a secular nation. Sometimes Jewish people, many of them, are even atheistic and agnostic in their orientation. That's just a fact. Very, very confused about spiritual matters. But even though Jesus was directly speaking of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, in this form of judgment, however, this form of judgment has a valid application to all people, not only Jewish people. You see, those who have heard and those who have been exposed to Bible teaching, but who continue to sit under Bible teaching, and yet they resist accepting Christ, they will find that their hearts will eventually become hardened against Christ and his word, with the result being that they will understand less and less of the Bible, even though they've heard it a lot, even though they may have grown up in a church where they've heard it taught. This is why it's very common to hear a person who's had some exposure to the Bible in their past, but who hasn't accepted Christ as their savior. It's very common to hear something like, I don't understand the Bible at all. It's nonsense. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. My parents believe it. My family believes, but it makes no sense to me. That's a very common thing that you hear. And the reason it makes no sense to them is because having willfully rejected the plain truth, now they can't understand it. They can't understand it. I have a sign in my office which reads these words. When we lack the will to see things as they really are, there is nothing so mysterious as the obvious. That's exactly the case with those who have heard sound Bible teaching, heard the gospel, and yet they continue to reject it. Listen, there is a great danger of coming to a church like Lakeside Community Chapel where the Bible is taught and then not accepting Christ as your Savior and just sitting and listening but doing nothing about the, the gospel. And I'm especially thinking and burdened about you, our young people, our young people who come week after week, hear the Bible taught, but don't repent of your sin and don't trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, I want to warn you, you are in grave danger because after having so much exposure 
to the Bible, if you continue to reject Christ and you go out of this building and you just go on your way and you have lunch and you don't give any thought to it, if you continue like that, your heart is going to grow harder and harder to the point where you won't even understand the Bible that you've been taught. It just won't make sense to you. So I'm warning you, while you have opportunity, and you have opportunity now, do something about that. Believe on Christ, turn your life over to Him, and you'll see how much Scripture then makes sense to you, and it will keep on making sense to you. So there is a great danger in just coming and sitting and doing nothing about the truth. Let that be a warning to you from God through me. And so Jesus revealed that the reason he spoke to these Jewish unbelievers in parables was because this was God's judgment upon them. They would hear him speak these parables, but wouldn't understand what he was talking about. And why? Because in rejecting his clear teaching, God was judging them. This was divine judgment so that all they heard in parables would just sound, as I said earlier, just like stories, riddles, that they just couldn't make any sense out of. Just a nice, interesting story. On the contrary, though, those who have have come to Christ, those who believe on Christ, will be able to understand him, and you'll be able to understand the meaning of his parables. As Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17 tell us, speaking specifically to his disciples, Jesus said, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's referring to Old Testament prophets, Old Testament godly people. They long to see what we see, what we understand on this side of the cross. Listen, regardless of your level of education, if you are a Christian, you can understand God's Word. This was one of the major issues in the the horrible error of the Roman Catholic Church to tell their people that you can't understand the Word of God, so we will have to interpret it for you. That's absolutely wrong. If you're a true believer, you can understand God's Word. And in particular, Jesus was saying you can understand the parables. That's what he's referring to here. Now notice what Jesus said to his disciples just a little bit later after giving a number of parables. Matthew 13, 51. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Yes. In other words, you explained it to us. We understand it. Now the Lord's disciples weren't more intelligent than the Pharisees. They certainly weren't more educated than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very smart guys. The Pharisees were very learned men, academically learned. But the Lord's disciples, they understood what Jesus was talking about while the Pharisees didn't. So listen, you don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to think that, well, I just can't understand God's word because I've never been to Bible school. I've never been to seminary. The Pharisees had all kinds of scholarly training, but they were spiritually blind. And not only can we who believe in Jesus understand the Bible, but Jesus said we're blessed. We're blessed because we've been given truths about his kingdom that not even Old Testament believers had. That's why it's called a mystery. It's now revealed to us. They didn't even understand about the church age, but we do. And in the time we have remaining, we'll look at one of those truths that Old Testament believers didn't know, but you do, as we move on to learn about Christ's interpretation of the parable of the sower. So I told you, we only have the time to look at one, one soil and our Lord's interpretation of that. But here's what we read in verses 11 and 12. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. 
Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Now, Jesus begins his interpretation of the parable by explaining that the seed that's thrown on the soil, it represents the word of God. It is the seed of the word. That's why I read to you earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, the imperishable seed of the word. Therefore, the sower represents who? It represents anyone who throws the seed, meaning anyone who proclaims the gospel, meaning us in our day and age. As you witness to someone, you are throwing the seed. And the hard-packed soil beside the road, Jesus said, represents those people who have heard the gospel message, but they have hardened hearts, just like the hardened soil. So they hear God's word, but the word does not penetrate their hearts. John MacArthur explains that people like this, he said, are stubbornly resolute and rigid in their indifference and hostility to the gospel, motivated by their love of their sin. The heart of such people is a thoroughfare, constantly trampled and packed down by the sins that traverse it. It is never plowed by conviction, self-examination, honest assessment of guilt and repentance. It is callous to the sweet reasonings of grace as it is to the fearful terrors of judgment. Folks, this is an individual who hears the gospel, but it doesn't pierce his heart. It doesn't penetrate his heart with conviction of sin. And why doesn't the gospel penetrate this individual's heart? Well, Matthew, again in his gospel account, says that while he hears the word of the kingdom, he does not understand it. This is a person to whom someone has witnessed, someone has evangelized. He's not ignorant of the truth about Jesus, the message of salvation. He's heard the message of Jesus being the only Savior, of Jesus being Lord. That entrance into his kingdom is by repentance and faith in him. But he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. And why doesn't he understand the gospel? Well, it has nothing to do with his lack of intelligence. And it has nothing to do with the way that the message was presented in the sense that it may have been presented in a confusing manner but he just didn't understand it? No, that's not it. And it certainly has nothing to do with the power of the message because the gospel, we're told, is the power of God unto salvation. No, this this hard-hearted individual doesn't understand the gospel because he doesn't want to understand it. He doesn't want to understand it. You see, like the hard-packed, beaten-down soil of the road, this person's heart has become hardened, calloused to the truth of the gospel. He's just not interested in it. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't want to comprehend it. It's, it's precious truths about Christ mean nothing to him. I'm sure you've witnessed to people like this. You do the best you can to explain the grace of God, and it means absolutely nothing to them. Nothing. He's not going to give any careful consideration to them. Like the farmer's seed just lying on the surface of the soil, so the gospel message of salvation just lies on the surface of this person's life. It never sinks in and penetrates his soul and his heart. See, people with hardened hearts like this, they may react to the gospel with intense animosity. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly did. But they also may be just completely apathetic, totally indifferent, like many of the Jewish people of Christ's day who who personally witnessed his miracles, and yet they did nothing about it. How could you see a miracle of Jesus Christ, hear him teach, and do nothing about it and just go home and have lunch or dinner? But that's what they did. Regardless of how they outwardly react when they hear the gospel, there is a hardness to them that never allows the truth 
of the gospel to penetrate their hearts simply because they don't want it to. They're very satisfied with their sinful condition. They aren't interested in repenting of their sin and having Christ rule over them as Lord. So they never give any serious consideration to the gospel. They never sit down and think through the implications of the gospel for their lives. It never even crosses their minds that this might be true that this might be the truth to save their soul for all of eternity. It never dawns on them, this might be the most important thing that I will ever, ever hear. They care so little about the gospel that they do nothing with it. They just hear it. They refuse to give any serious reflection to it. Now, how does an individual become this hardened to the gospel so that when someone witnesses to them, it makes no impression upon them. Well, the only thing that makes someone this hard to the truth is sin. Sin. Constant sinfulness, constant resistance to God's Word causes one, as I said earlier, to become calloused, unfeeling to the truth so that one can reach a point where he can hear God's Word, but it has absolutely no impact upon him. The Word just lies on the surface without the person even bothering to give any serious consideration to it. And you know what happens when the message about Christ lies on the surface and is not allowed to penetrate and take root in a person's heart and soul? Well, Jesus said what happens, verse 12. He said, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Just like the birds in the parable who saw the exposed seed just lying on the hard-packed surface of the soil, and they swooped down and ate the seed. So when Satan, the devil, when he sees God's words lying on the surface of someone's life without penetrating it, he just swoops in. He snatches it away. In other words, when someone hears the Bible, but it has no impact on their life, the devil comes and snatches away what that person has heard so that the word has no opportunity to infiltrate and penetrate their life. So how in the world does Satan do this? How does this happen? Well, there are a number of ways, a number of methods that the evil one has. Sometimes Satan uses false teachers to snatch the word away the gospel message. Paul referred to false religious teachers as ambassadors of Satan, 2 Corinthians 11. He called their teaching doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. He said that false teachers deceive people, and they often do this by telling those who have heard the gospel, you know what, it just isn't true. No, no, we have all these degrees behind our names, and we've gone to school, and we're telling you the Bible's not true. This isn't true, so you can just dismiss it from your minds. Sometimes the devil uses sinful human pride. He uses it to tell people they aren't so bad that they need to be saved by Christ. He'll say, well, the gospel is really for bad people. I mean, really bad people, but not you. You're a good person. You've never murdered anybody. So don't worry about going to heaven. You'll be there. If anyone will make it, you'll make it. The evil one also uses the fear of being rejected by family and friends to turn people away from giving any serious thought about Christ. What will people think of you if you turn into a religious fanatic? I mean, you might lose your family. You might lose your friends. You're certainly, it's going to hurt your business. It's going to hurt your career. So forget what you just heard about Jesus. Just dismiss it. This happens to be one of the primary devices the devil uses with Jewish people who hear 
the gospel. He causes them to think that coming to Christ means being a traitor to their own people, turning their backs upon being Jewish and their entire heritage by becoming a Gentile. Now that's not true, but that's what they think. Listen, Satan is so sinister in snatching away the truth from, about Christ from individuals that he will even use inconsistent Christians, perhaps even parents, grandparents, who claim to know Christ but don't live like they know Christ. He'll turn people away from the gospel as he convinces them, if, if those people are Christians, they're hypocrites and you don't want to be like them. So stop even giving a thought about believing this. It's nothing. Look at their lives. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't live by the truth because it's not true. So just move on. Now, if you've allowed Satan to deceive you with any of these lies, then you need to be aware that these are indeed lies. This is not the truth. You've been lied to by the evil one and your heart has become hardened. It needs to be softened to the gospel before it's too late, before Satan snatches the truth about Jesus from you. So how does God soften a hard-hearted person? I want you to know he does soften a hard-hearted person because at one point, all of us who knew Christ had sin-hardened hearts. In fact, it was worse than that. Our hearts weren't simply hardened. We were dead in our sins and trespasses and God made us alive. Well, listen, very often, very often God breaks through a hard heart by sending some pain into your life. Pain in the form of a of an intense trial, some severe crisis so that you come to a point where you see how insufficient you are to handle this serious problem on your own. You recognize that you need help from the Lord. And as you turn to the Lord for help with this trial, so often God uses this to graciously open your heart to understand that you have a far deeper need than just solving a problem, getting over a crisis. You have a need to accept Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. You are sinful and you need a Savior. This has been the experience of many who first sought the Lord and His help during a very difficult time in their lives. And God used this this new awareness of your need for His help to ultimately bring you to salvation. Some of you here perhaps had that experience. That was my experience. A great need. I didn't know that I needed Christ, but I turned to Him. I turned to the Lord for help. And in his mercy and grace, he opened my heart to the gospel. And perhaps this resonates with you. Maybe you're going through a very painful difficulty or you've had a very painful difficulty recently and you don't know where to turn. Well, you can turn to Jesus, but understand that your greatest need, the greatest need you have is the need for him to be your Lord and Savior, not just help you get over this this trial. Jesus died on the cross for sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me and everybody else here, and he offers you eternal life. He offers you the forgiveness of your sins, and if you'll turn from your sin, And if you'll turn to him and trust him alone for your salvation, he will not cast you out. He who comes to me, Jesus said, I will never, ever, ever cast them out. So we're going to close the service in just a few moments. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then just see me at the close of the service. But if you're already a Christian, then understand that Christ's point, his purpose in telling us about people with hearts that are hardened to his word, his purpose, folks, is to inform us that this is what we can expect 
as we witness to people in our world. This is the world we live in. This is the day and age we live in. This means that you are going to encounter people like this as you evangelize. Don't avoid them. Witness to them and understand why the gospel means nothing to them. It's because they are hard-hearted. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful passage of Scripture. It is so enlightening to those of us who know you. Our, our hearts resonate. We, we know these things are true. We know this is right. We have encountered these truths as we encounter people. But I pray, Lord, I'm burdened for the people of this church, especially our young people, who have so much exposure to the Word of God and yet so often just listen with one ear and it's out the other ear and they go from here and it doesn't make an impact on their lives. I pray that you'll do a special work of grace in the young people of Lakeside. But I also realize that there are other people, not just our young people, who may sit and hear the word and do nothing about it. I pray that you'll break through, that you'll penetrate their lives with the word of God before it's too late. I pray you'll draw them to yourself. And for those of us who know you, Lord, may we be encouraged to know that this is exactly what you predicted would happen. There are many people who are just hard in their hearts and we witness to them, we love them. Some of them are family members, some of them are close friends, perhaps neighbors. Help us, help us to understand as this parable enlightens us why they do this, but to still be faithful and steadfast in proclaiming the truth and to pray for them that the gospel will eventually penetrate. All of this we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.